Welcome back to another episode of Uncivil Discourse with your favorite podcast hosts, Olivia Husseini and Elijah George. That's me. We're continuing the topic of the Russian government's influence over civil society from music to non-governmental organizations in Russia, or to be more on the nose about it, the lack of them. Non-governmental organizations, otherwise known as NGOs because the full thing is really just a mouthful, are exactly what they sound like. Organizations that aren't created by the government of the land they work in, but by its people, typically granting benefits to its members. They often but not always tackle humanitarian issues, such as unemployment, homelessness, sickness, what have you. Since they're not funded by the government, they often rely on donations from the public, both domestic and foreign, as well as international or intergovernmental groups like the United Nations. So if they're so positive, why would there be a lack of them in Russia, you might ask? Good question! First, you need to know that Russia didn't always have a distaste for NGOs, but that as political ideologies developed, NGOs started getting crushed under them. Time for a quick history lesson. See, non-governmental organizations have cropped up at several points in Russian history, although not necessarily under that name. In the period of 1760 to 1860, around Catherine the Great's reign, non-governmental organizations, or as they were known at this time, voluntary organizations, were flourishing. They would work with the Tsar, but not for the Tsar, and covered multiple areas of interest. Some voluntary organizations of note are the Russian Geographical Society, the Free Economic Society, the Moscow Agricultural Society, the Russian Technical Society, and the Pirogov Association of Russian Doctors. Voluntary organizations were also major legal influences, able to sway decisions and opinions of the government and the public alike. The Russian Geographical Society was one of the most prominent, with the goal to promote a love and understanding of Russia. One of its main selling points was its ability to distribute information among the people. Simply by virtue of not being a government agency, the Russian Geographical Society was in a much better position to make sure that the information from their studies and surveys would be better disseminated among the people. Their independent status also allowed them to receive information from the people in a similar way. As one of the society's goals was to better understand Russia, they created an ethnographic division, which focused on nigh everything about Russia. Population, ethnicity, domestic life, folk traditions, everything. And they actually got a decent number of responses back. However, hints of the future attitude towards associations outside of government control began to slip through when the Russian Geographical Society opened their statistics division. At the time, the government wasn't necessarily interested in transparency or petty little things like releasing any statistics to the public, meaning that the statistics division was an incredibly bold move. They also opened a subdivision, the political economic section, but that was very quickly shut down. Wonder why? This was the beginning of a real group formed outside the government, a taste of civil society as we know it today. As Joseph Bradley, a researcher into voluntary organizations in Russia, says, A forum outside government in autocratic Russia existed on treacherous terrain, but the society drew in the public and created civic consciousness. 
The next major period for civil society started in Tsar Alexander II's time, during which he made a series of sweeping changes known as the Great Reforms. Of course, whenever you make reforms to a government, the more people are going to question that government, so this led to some political unrest. There were extra straight groups, such as the Narodniks and the To the People movement, who refused to accept the state of the government and the people as it was. Naturally, this caused a crackdown on political expression, and lots of voluntary organizations fell under the axe. That includes virtually every single name from the list before, even our lovely Russian Geographical Society. What remained of the voluntary organizations radicalized, splitting from their previous beliefs in order to provide a stronger stance and likely get more people to join as a result. It's slightly telling, then, that the only law regarding voluntary organizations was passed after the first Russian Revolution in 1906. The government didn't want to try incentivizing joining a voluntary organization, likely due to the idea that the people might become more radical as they join these groups, and also as a result of the extra state challenges. Urbanization might have been hitting an upswing, but civil society was very much not, and was, perhaps, the thing that was being hit by that upswing. However, after the law was passed, nearly 5,000 new organizations sprung up, which would be wonderful, except the fact that it had two revolutions to compete with, Democratic in February of 1917 and then Socialist in October of that same year. That kinda killed everything very fast. The Soviets weren't necessarily fond of civil society groups. The ideal was that there would be no separation under their way of life, communism, including groups like, we have a mutual interest. This would go to the point of ignoring racial tensions because they're all united under the same banner. That, strangely enough, didn't seem to work out. Who would have thought that trying to ignore all the differences between people in favor of making them all fit one mold instead of acknowledging each other's unique differences and would result in a conflict between strifing groups? Shocker. Further from the Soviet-sponsored culture, though, there was peasant culture, which, interestingly enough, ran a few programs that essentially amounted to proto-social services. Every district had its own peasant mutual society, which functioned as a way for the elderly, the young, and the widowed to have access to a steady income. There was also a similar service to help young schoolchildren get books and other boring but necessary school supplies, proving that the human instinct is really just to care for one another. Only for every silver lining, there's a rain cloud, and ours comes in the form of the Soviet Union. Around the 1930s, Voluntary organizations, including the peasant district ones, were taken down and replaced by government ones, allowing for greater control over their activities and distribution of supplies. Several ideologies of the movements that were created in the voluntary organizations instead were heavily communist, such as the Soviet Committee for Peace, the Union for Atheists, and the Union for Women. However, things began to thaw out a little in late 1950s or early 1960s. People began coming forward with their own little groups, emboldened by Khrushchev's denouncing of Stalin, which, good for him. Associations began to spring back into life. 
One minor issue with this plan is that the Soviet movement also gets returned to a party, which allows them a reasonable amount of comfort, just like the rest of us, if the rest of us were communists and also had the public had the power to sway public opinion against basic health and safety like rights, like LGBTQ people. This attitude, unfortunately, still carries over into today. For more than eight years, the Kremlin has made the civil environment for NGOs especially hostile. Although the Russian government has a history of suppressing civil society, the Kremlin has become increasingly tenacious in its efforts to silence threatening voices within Russian society, starting with the 2012 Foreign Agents Law. In 2012, the Russian government passed a series of amendments to laws regarding NGOs. It had already passed a similar series of amendments in 2006, which tightened restrictions on non-commercial organizations by giving the government the authority to, de to deny non-governmental organizations from registering, basically to deny organizations from being created, if their purpose or intentions were seen as a threat to the interests of the Russian Federation. In other words, if the government didn't like what an organization stood for, they could prevent them from establishing themselves. Moreover, this 2006 legislation prevented non-Russian residents from creating an NGO in Russia by requiring proof of residency upon registration. However, in 2009, following a visit to Russia by then-President Barack Obama, the Russian government enacted legislation that loosened restrictions on NGOs, undoing some of the harm done by the 2006 law. The 2009 legislation protected organizations from being denied registration if they were perceived as a threat to Russian ideals, limited the number of documents that were required of an organization for registration, and decreased the frequency of government audits. Although it was still difficult for some civic organizations to go about their work, the 2009 law helped to encourage participation in civil society. However, things turned sour from there. The Russian constitution states that a president can only hold office for a maximum of two terms. However, in 2011, Vladimir Putin announced that he would be running for a third term as president, after already serving two terms from the year 2000 to 2008. Moreover, around this time, there were allegations that Putin and his collaborators were responsible for rigging the 2011 legislative elections in Russia. Following this news, protests broke out all throughout Russia, first in Moscow before spreading to other cities. These protests were collectively known as the Snow Revolution, which itself was a part of the Color Revolutions, which characterizes several movements that have taken place in Europe as well as China. Many Russian citizens were outraged, and the mass protests and demonstrations worried the Kremlin, which reacted in a similar fashion to Chinese government officials who arrested many activists and doubled down on suppressing dissent after the 2011 Chinese Jasmine Revolution which was also part of the color revolutions. After Putin was inaugurated in 2012, he quickly sought to send a message to dissenters by signing legislation that significantly, significantly increased the fines applicable for someone who takes part in a protest that is unauthorized by the state. Hundreds of protesters were arrested and fined as a result. Putin would later go on to sign legislation that would make a sentence of up to five years of forced labor or prison an acceptable penalty for protesters. However, another significant event that occurred soon after, 
Putin's inauguration was the passing of the Magnitsky Act. In response to the death of Sergei Magnitsky in 2009 due to his health and wellness being neglected in a Russian prison, the United States government enacted legislation that, among other things, banned the Russian officials responsible for the death of Sergei Magnitsky from entering the United States, claiming that his death was a human rights violation. This legislation is known as the Magnitsky Act. In retaliation for this, U for this U.S. legislation, as well as in response to the 2011 protests, the Russian government passed the Foreign Agents Law in 2012. This legislation was another series of amendments which targeted non-governmental organizations. Under this law, NGOs that take part in political activity, as determined by government authorities, and are recipients of foreign funding of any kind are required to register as foreign agents. However, due to the vagueness of the language used in this legislation, authorities could use it to label any undesirable organization as a foreign agent. Therefore, the Kremlin could target human rights organizations and any organization that promotes anything that could challenge Putin's legitimacy, such as one that advocates for government accountability, and essentially eliminate them. Under this law, organizations labeled as foreign agents face a plethora of obstacles, such as loads of paperwork and an unlimited number of spontaneous audits due to heightened government, governmental scrutiny, which hurt these organizations immensely and prevents them from doing their work. This law also prevented civic organizations in Russia from receiving funding from foreign sor sources as those who do are faced with enormous fines and are forced to register as a foreign agent, causing them to become increasingly dependent on the government for funding. Therefore, the Kremlin has gained significant control over Russia's civil society. The Ministry of Economic Development, the federal agency mostly responsible for the funding of civic organizations, only provides funding to organizations that, are se that separate themselves from politics, yet still openly praise the government because those organizations do not challenge Putin's regime. By the same logic, they do not provide funding for human rights organizations or organizations that advocate for, for environmental issues, because these organizations aim to hold the government accountable, as mentioned before. Moreover, foreign agents are required to label all of their public media as that of a foreign agent. In Russian society, the term foreign agent has an extremely negative connotation and it implies that someone is a spy or a traitor. Therefore, this label damaged the reputation of many organizations in the eyes of the public, further exacerbating their struggles. Other organizations are afraid to associate with these organizations that are labeled as foreign agents, and potential investors also, also distance themselves from these organizations, causing them to be further dependent on the government's funding and forcing them to either disband or conform to the Kremlin's demands. Although the Kremlin has claimed that the establishment of this law was to protect Russia from foreign influences, as well as organizations that work against the interests of Russians, the true intention behind the law was to increase the Russian government's control over NGOs and civil society as a whole. However, some are still fooled. Along with these efforts to limit civil society, the Russian government has been making efforts to promote civil society as well by awarding grants and tax privileges for civic organizations. 
Some view the ministry's financial support system positive to, positively because they believe that the funding that they do provide allows civil society to thrive and allows these organizations to provide important services. However, organizations that receive funding from the government must be completely loyal to the government. And if an organization expresses any sort of criticism or disapproval of the government's proceedings, they will lose funding entirely and have to shut down. The government's selective funding measures are used to, to manipulate nonprofit organizations and neutralize civil society. Organizations are forced to focus on projects and issues that the government deems as acceptable, and they are prevented from advocating for issues that expose corruption within the Russian government. Therefore, the nonprofit sector becomes almost a branch of the state, and these organizations are unable to fight for the actual interests of Russian citizens. So, why is Putin doing this? Well, by labeling certain organizations, the ones that see the government for what it is really doing, as anti-Russia and as essentially terrorist groups, the Kremlin is sending a message to the Russian public. Government officials are demonstrating that the organizations that are loyal to the government are seen as legitimate, while those that dissent are not. But wait, there's more! In 2015, the Russian parliament passed a law that allowed the Russian government to drive these non-governmental organizations out of the country. In conjunction with the 2012 law, this law caused the number of civic groups in Russia to decrease by 33%. Moreover, in, 2007, in 2019, the foreign agents law was expanded to include journalists and bloggers. Therefore, basically anyone could be labeled as anti-Russia and be su subjected to the political and legal consequences. Before the enactment of this 2019 law, foreign agent organizations could dissolve and their individual members could still continue their activism work separately. However, individuals were now stripped of their freedom to participate in civil activism if the authorities chose to prevent them from doing so. Anyone can be labeled as a foreign agent if they receive support from a foreign state, organization, or even a person, and use this support to engage in any sort of political activity in Russia. Individuals designated as a foreign agent have to register with authorities and be placed on a list, which bars them from running for office and holding a government, a government position. Moreover, these designated individuals are prevented from participating in public councils. Since, since the FSB has the authority to decide what qualifies under this legislation, many are worried that this arbitrary law will be abused, which is almost guaranteed. These laws are all part of the Kremlin's efforts to suppress dissent and opposition, and to ultimately control civil society. Putin is simultaneously utilizing methods of corporatism by restricting and preventing the establishment of independent NGOs in order to reinforce state control, as well as methods of clientelism by rewarding organizations that follow the Kremlin's orders in order to encourage loyalty and support for the regime. Putin has claimed that these laws are meant to prevent interference from foreign countries in Russian politics, as well as to increase transparency. But it is obvious that these efforts, both to suppress and promote civil society, are meant to increase the Kremlin's grasp on civil society and maintain the, leg the legitimacy of Putin's regime. 
Putin cannot have people telling the truth about him or what is going on in Crimea. In fact, Russia's occupation of Russia's occupation of Crimea is an especially sensitive topic in Russian society, which has led to numerous arrests and fines. One man in particular, Andrei Bubiev, was sentenced to over two years in prison for posting memes on social media which were somewhat critical of the Russian seizure of Crimea. Putin has to make sure that the public expresses only positive opinions of him and the actions of the Russian government, because he needs the support of the public, and he also needs to maintain his personality cult, which is much like that of Ali Khamenei, the supreme leader of Iran. Therefore, Putin, as described by a Russian scholar named Leon Aron, is slowly, but fatally, strangling Russian civil society through a series of laws. Laws which instill fear in Russian citizens and discourage civic participation. For how is one expected to express their interests in a society that threatens people with enormous fines and prison sentences and shuts down organizations that express even an inkling of criticism? In this environment, civil society is suffering greatly, and the people are unable to stand up for their beliefs and interests. However, Russia isn't the exception. China is doing the exact same thing. Although China has opened up more since the end of Mao's rule, China's civil society is still monitored and restricted. Within Chinese civil society, there are government-operated non-governmental organizations, or GONGOs, which are organizations that are led by party officials. They are seen as ideal and legitimate as they are controlled by the state. While there are some non-governmental organizations that operate within Chinese society, they are watched closely by state authorities. The Chinese government takes dissent seriously, and protesters and those who speak out against the government are arrested and criminalized. In fact, the Chinese government passed a law in 2016 which restricts foreign NGOs, much like the 2012 Foreign Agents Law in Russia. China seems to be following a similar path as Russia, and the state of civil society in both of these countries is a cause for concern.